Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. Today's guest is Jessica Rosenberg, who is the author of a new book titled Botanical Poetics, Early Modern Plant Books, and the Husbandry of Print. Jessica is Assistant Professor of English at the University of Miami. Botanical Poetics, a wide-ranging study of print culture around poetry between the years 1568 and 1583, investigates the intersection of literary history and horticultural practice. Jessica has contributed book chapters to Shakespeare and Hospitality and Ecological Approaches to Early Modern Literature and published articles on The Poetics of Practical Address in Philological Quarterly and The Point of the Couplet in English Literary History. Welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thank you, John. It is great to be here. First, I'd like to offer congratulations on the publication of Botanical Poetics. What are the best and worst things about having the book out in the world? Well, it's great to not be writing it anymore, (laughs) Um, but it's also great as someone who works on books and thinks about what it means to hold it in your hand to actually hold it in my hand. Um, I'm really happy with the production and everything that pended with it, so that's certainly part of it, too. Um, And I think one upside to having a book come out right now at the um, where we sort of figured out a lot of the virtual things that we're doing this many years into the pandemic, too, is to be able to connect with people across a sort of bigger geographical range um, than might have been the case five or 10 years ago with a book coming out. So that's really nice. Um, And the last thing I would say is that it's you know, after working on a book for many years, having sort of side ideas that I would sort of stick in an incubator or into a box and being able to now open some of those, um, having them being, you know, idly incubating for years is that part's also kind of fun at this point. Having having that liberty to go um, pick up a new thread and follow it. Yeah, exactly. And, and let me say, um, the, the production of this book is excellent. I, I love the cover. Um, I love the kind of tactile feel of the book in the hand. It's really excellent. Um, 
this book is based on your dissertation. Um, what, what was the process like developing it into a book? What advice would you give to someone embarking on that process? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, for me, a lot of that process was about time and labor, as it is for everyone. Um, I was lucky during that time to be able to spend a year at the Huntington um, doing a lot more archival research um, and also sort of expanding some of the empirical claims in the book, deepening what I could say about print culture in that period. At that point, I assembled a, a fairly large, robust database of these books that I'm calling plant books. Um, so I knew at the end of the dissertation that I wanted to be able to make some of those claims more confidently to be able to say, not just say that something's exceptional, but really show here's where this fits in. Here's where this phenomenon that I'm describing in the book um, of the convergence of plant logic and book logic, here's where it really stands out. Um, <clears throat> in terms of how, how I would frame that in terms of advice, I think one of the things that I noticed with my dissertation and with other friends and colleagues who were sort of going through the process of turning a dissertation into a book that a lot of the work and a lot of the really hard intellectual, scholarly, and archival work of doing a dissertation is assembling the archive that you're writing about, deciding what goes where, how do these things go together. Um, and I, I think for a lot of that reason, a lot of dissertations, especially in these earlier periods, um, <clears throat> have a kind of deictic quality in the argument. Um for lack of a better way of putting it, I'll expand on that, I guess. But the um, the sense that here is what I'm working on, here is why I am putting these things together. Um, and I think a lot of the work of translating that into a book that more people will read, that will be widely published and hopefully widely read and cited, um, is becoming less deictic about the materials that you're working on, sort of doing less pointing at here is what the things I'm working on and why and saying, putting the conceptual center first or the cluster of central concepts first um, and then saying here's how the archive works that out if that makes sense um, so sort of it's a shift in balance in some ways um, because hopefully you know you want the book to go places and not be just limited to its archive um, so that shift in focus um, thinking much more about a sort of wider range of readership and what good the book could do for them rather than the good it could do you in getting you your PhD <laughs> Right. Um, uh, that shift sort of from archive to that conceptual framework, um, I think, is the biggest intellectual work um, of writing the book. So so would that distinction be something like the dissertation is about establishing one's uh, bona fides and the book is more about uh, producing a, a public good or a kind of intellectual good? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. And I think the thinking about the book as a public good, I, I really like that way of framing it. It's like there should be things here for other people to use um, and thinking about what conceptually other people could use out of it and where it could go um, that you don't need to I think, you know, you don't need to justify why you've chosen to write about what you've chosen to write about. I think when you're writing a book, to some degree, that's there. Um, but it's sort of saying, what futures could it have? What could other people do with these concepts or get out of it? Or what are the places it could go? 
I, I love that. I, I love that uh, that advice. Um, botanical poetics is about an intellectual problem for early modern poets and printers. How do you introduce this odd commodity, a book of individual poems on a range of topics, often with miscellaneous forms and topics, um, even if the printer knew they couldn't prescribe how it will be read or used? Once it's in the hands of a reader, that reader might choose a very uh, unorthodox uh, way to approach these poems. How did printers try to anticipate how a reader might deal with all that variety, that latent potential, that possible wastefulness and itinerancy that distinguish the early modern uh, poetry book? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one that's absolutely at the center of what I was trying to think through with the book. Um, Many scholars in the past have talked about how aspects of printing control, regulate, or sort of modulate how a reader encounters the book, whether through marginalia, the titling of poems and print, something that doesn't happen in manuscript in the same way. One of the things that I found, though, by looking at these books that are using the language of plants in different ways is that they don't do that as much. Um, They don't necessarily try to regulate or control exactly how a reader approaches the book and what they do instead. And and you, you said this in your question is that they, they anticipate or sort of tell stories about how the reader might encounter the book. Um, So all of those unknowns, contingencies, dangers about what might happen to the text after publication, where it might go, what people might do to it, whether they might tear it up or read it in the wrong order or um, scandalize the author in some way, whatever it might be, um, they absorb those, both printers and poets absorb those into the account of reading that they give. Um, And one of the reasons that the botanical structure is important there too is that they use the language of horticulture and agriculture to do that quite a bit so that you plant a seed and then something else happens to it later. Um, so a lot of those unknowns and contingencies are, they make sense of them through the unknowns and contingencies, the skilled approach to the unknown that agriculture and horticulture represent. Two particular strategies um, that they use, one of them is through variety itself. So in the printed miscellany, the printed collection of poetry or other printed collections, many of which have combinations of prose and verse or narrative fiction, um, rather than limiting that or trying to shape the variety in a way, one of the things that I argue is that they actually enhance variety and make it a selling point. So a great example of this by the late 1570s is um, a poetry collection or a collection of mostly poetry called The Forest of Fancy that tells readers, and the forest is partially a symbol of that too. Here is this messy, disorganized, sometimes shadowy, difficult to navigate forest, and you make your own path through it. So part of the pleasure of reading a book like that is one, well, readers may have their own taste. They may dislike some things and like other things, and they can find something for themselves there regardless. But the second part of that, that's part of what they're advertising to readers, is that there's some surprise in finding something good, too. So there's a poem, um, there are a couple poems that model that actually as as an allegory of reading the book as a whole. One narrates the 
the poet is wandering through a forest and finds a um, a hazelnut in the forest and learns how to bite into it. And there's this sort of wonderful serendipity in the deliciousness of it and its virtues and the surprise of finding something in the midst of variety. So part of the contingency becomes part of the experience of the book that they're selling. The second thing is, and this is a little bit more perverse in some ways, or seems that way, that they imagine readers doing terrible things to the books, too, that they anticipate some of the anticipated histories of reading involve readers tearing it up or uprooting the poems, um, something that I imagine we may talk about more. They imagine, and I have a a sh- short mini chapter, one of the two so-called branches in the book is called How to Read Like a Pig. And pigs become a figure of that kind of reading. So part of what fascinates me here is why do poets and printers think about piggish, swinish, or terrible readers of other kinds? Um, and that's partially anticipating histories of reading and seeing where the book might go, um, even when those places are bad. So telling those stories in advance, I think, is a different strategy than and a more creative, fictive, literary strategy in some ways. It relies on the imagination of reading rather than the logistical control of reading through the infrastructure of the book and the page. That's great. And I want to come back to swinish reading, which is wonderful, a wonderful thing to think about. Um, but first, I'd like to um, talk about the floral embroidery on these book pages. Um, anyone who's read these early printings of Elizabethan poetry is familiar with this, um, these larger frames of intricate flowers that were reproduced and, and used uh, in various texts published in the period. How did this floral embroidery meaningfully guide readers in their encounter with poetry? Yeah, well, these these borders are totally fascinating. Their printing history is totally fascinating. Um, they first appear in English printed books in the 1560s, um, and they're made of modular pieces of ornament that could be cast from each other so that you'd have a repeating pattern. The first printer to use them was likely a guy named Henry Denham, who had picked up particular designs um, from printers in Italy and France who had been using them for a few years. Um, Juliet Fleming has written about these in really fascinating ways, including how they're, they are like writing, but not legible as writing. So they create a writing like surface of the page, which is I think part of what's so interesting about them. Um, And the fact that they are modular and can be repeated and reused. So I, there's a couple things about those that I think are especially important. Um, When one is, that you start to see them in this period and that you start to see these bordered title pages on particular kinds of books. So they serve a essentially sociological role there, um, or my reading takes a sort of sociological approach to thinking, how do they mark the books that they appear on as being a particular kind of book, as belonging to a particular kind of genre imprint, as inhabiting a particular region within a broader literary field. So in two of the printers who use these earliest, Henry Denham, as I mentioned, and another another guy named Henry Binneman, um, <clears throat> in the books that they use them on from the 1560s through the 1570s, you see these floral title pages, um, ornamentally bordered 
title pages, especially on translations and especially on collections of different kinds, different miscellanies, um, which are marking those as being for a particular kind of audience, of a kind of class, of a kind of learning. Um, So there's some of that taxonomizing of the text and the reader that they're doing. Um, But it's also setting up the book as a particular kind of object, which I think is especially interesting too. Um, On the one hand, seeing the page contained in that way, with a border around it, within a frame as part of an enclosure, it imagines the codex, which is the codex, which is essentially a multiple composite kind of object, something that's made up of things literally sewn together and that could be literally torn apart as a single contained thing. It gives a two-dimensional enclosed shape to this three or even four dimensional, if you think about what, you know, what happens to it across time, um, mixed up, messier version of what the book is. So it helps you imagine that the book as a thing. Um, It also, through the surface effects as ornament, it marks the book as something artificial, made up, designed. Um, It looks like it's been written on. and that it's been concocted or confected in a way. So that marks it as part of a particular kind of aesthetic dispensation too, that someone has, it's been wrought in a way. Um, So those are two things, two ways that it primes the reader. One of the things that's important for me though, with that work of enclosing the title page of showing the book as a solid enclosed single kind of object is that it never quite succeeds. It never achieves that kind of totalizing force that we might think it would. It's always in a kind of dialectical tension with these forces of dispersal. And and the books play these out so that you have a moment of seeing, oh, here's a title page. I've got a garden with a wall, for example, um, that often um, is mirroring that title page. But those same pieces that are making it up will break out or they'll break down or they'll get pieced out. Someone will take something from that enclosed garden and take a slip or a cutting and take it somewhere else or take a poem and remove it from the collection. So there's always this push and pull between the multiplicity of the book and these proposed conjured fictions of singularity or enclosure that a title page like that seems to suggest. Your book has one of the most interesting discussions of a single letter substitution I've read. That's virtue with an I and virtue with an E. Um, What did the etymology of virtue reveal about a reader's encounter with poetry, according to early modern printers and poets? Yeah, this this was so interesting to think about and begin looking into, um, in part, because as people who have spent time with early modern printed books or early modern manuscripts know, spelling is touch and go to start with. Um, But one of the strange things about virtue is that at least through the first part of the 17th century, it's very regularly spelled with an E and not with an I in print. Um, And that's strange in part because 
they loved talking about how virtue is tied to, you know, the Latin word vir, weir for man, right? They loved pointing that out. Um, and that connection, that etymology has been at the core of Renaissance studies since Burkhart. Nietzsche talked about it too, you know, um, that idea of the sort of manly power at the heart of Roman virtus and the figure of the man in virtue. But if we imagine people in the Renaissance, imagine early modern English readers reading about virtue and not actually seeing the eye when they see that, it opens up, I think, a different way to think about what virtue meant. And I'm, I'm interested there in a meaning that's mostly fallen out for us of virtue, but which was really the most common one meaning of it in the time, which is what I call an ecological sense of virtue or a materialist sense of virtue, namely that virtue is the innate latent force within any kind of matter that names the kind of work it might do in the world. That survives for us. We don't use it that much, but it does survive in phrases like by virtue of something, right? We're not, when we say by virtue of, we're not talking about ethics. We're talking about the force of something, that it's a causal effect. Um, <clears throat> the most common use of that ecological sense, and one reason why I call it ecological, is that it has this particular pharmacological meaning. And in the context of herbal medicine and printed herbals, it becomes a term of art for the innate forces or uses of different kinds of herbs in medicine and in medical uses. Um, and that's something that filters into printed books as well and into discussions of poetry. So as you're, as you're asking in your question, that's where it becomes really interesting for how printers and poets use it. Namely, they, to talk about <clears throat> here is the virtue of this poem or here is the virtue of this book or to tell a reader this book has this virtues or you should handle its virtues in this way. It suggests that the text is an active and even potentially dangerous thing sometimes for a plant to have a virtue. It isn't necessarily a good thing, right? It could be poison. It could be cure. It has that aspect of Plato's pharmacon that it could go either way. Um, <clears throat> and it also puts the pressure of whether it becomes a good thing or a bad thing, a dangerous thing or a healing thing, some combination of the two, it puts that pressure on the person who's handling the plant or the poem with the virtue. So it becomes the reader who has to say, oh, there are these latent virtues in this, which way is it going to go? How am I going to do this? One of the metaphors that a number of poets use, and this, this is, has long classical antecedents, is whether as a reader you're going to be a spider or a bee, whether you're going to take something toxic out of it or whether you're going to take honey out of it, and that that's a matter of what you do to it um, rather than what the inner essence of it is. So <clears throat> that that could that it puts the onus on how it's handled. It puts the onus on the skill of the person handling it. That's something I come back to quite a lot in the text. Uh, Plutarch is a very important source for that. He has an essay that um, people in the Renaissance referred to quite a lot about 
um, essentially how to listen to poetry. And that has a ton of pharmacological examples in it. And virtue appears throughout that in terms of what the poem has and what the text has. Um, The last thing I'll say about that question is that the sort of tension convergence jostling between that moral ethical meaning and the material ecological meaning becomes an opportunity for a lot of poets to play around with what might be dangerous, amoral, immoral about their poetry. I think George Gascoigne, whose um, Hundred Sundry Flowers were published in 1573 and then revised ostensibly corrected and made nicer by 1575 in the posies. Um, He plays around with that quite a bit in terms of talking about here are the virtues, here's what you should do with them. And it seems like those virtues are also the moral virtues there, but they're not necessarily. So there's always some ambiguity between ecological virtue, here's the force of something, the creature in the world and what it can do, and here's the moral implications of that thing, or you as the reader using it. You analyze how the play Romeo and Juliet considers the ecology of small forms. That interest in smallness extends from Juliet's name, which is a diminutive, to the role of misdirected letters and other small communications. What is the play saying about smallness and why does that help us think about aesthetic form differently? Yeah, that's a great question. The One of the things that once I started noticing a few small things in Romeo and Juliet, and I think other readers probably noticed this as well, you start seeing lots of them. So the that Juliet is one of those. Sonnet is another diminutive word. Um, Capulet is another diminutive ending. And then that we have flowers, we have potions, we have lots of these tiny things throughout the play. In Romeo and Juliet, one of the things that's interesting about those small forms is that they provide a counterpoint to a lot of the expectations that we have about tragedy and that coming out of Aristotle and in the cultural baggage of tragedy since, we associate with its scale, its seriousness, the scale of the tragic hero. And that in Romeo and Juliet, we have this tragedy that's centered essentially on these two kids who are not even princes or kings or of any particularly august social status. Um <clears throat> So to have them at the center of this is already a problem of scale when it comes to genre. And that we then see the play engaged, as many scholars have noted, with the sonnet as a poetic form, which is a small form, a playful form. You know, Romeo and Juliet begins with the sonnet in the prologue. We have Romeo writing sonnets. We have the two of them speaking a sonnet when they meet. It's playing around with small poetic forms as well and what place those might have in the larger scale of tragedy. So that's one of the formal tensions there is on the level of genre and scale. The other one that I think is especially interesting, and this is one that I explore with small forms throughout the book, is that when you have a small thing, it travels, right? It moves between people. And that's why I'm thinking about the traffic in small forms in that portion of the book and the traffic in small forms in Romeo, Romeo and Juliet, that it when you have something small, it goes from person to person. And what happens in the play is that 
none of those things get to the right destination. So the letter that's supposed to get to Romeo and Mantua, when um, when Friar Lawrence learns it hasn't get there, get, hasn't gotten there, and he starts to freak out. He says it was not nice. It was full of charge. So all of these small things in the play are full of charge, but their traffic gets interrupted. And one of the things that struck me as being important for that, for how we understand the play and its politics and how its politics connect to those formal dynamics, is that one of those trafficked things potentially is Juliet herself. And the play, as a number of feminist critics have noted, has a very strange relationship to the traffic in women and to what anthropologists have identified as the traffic in women. And that is that... In the fight between these two families, there's a resistance to what otherwise would be a cultural, social impulse towards exogamy, towards marrying outwards. Both of these families get locked inside themselves, almost incestuously. And Juliet marrying Romeo, in some senses, and the prince seems to endorse this at the end, would be a practice of the traffic in women and of exogamy rather than endogamy. But that gets broken in the play. It never works out. They never have any babies. They never, right? Those connections don't pan out. So the interruption of that kind of traffic in small forms, and on the other hand, the interruption in that marriage, in that potential other occasion of traffic in the play strikes me as especially fascinating and worth thinking about in part because the the small things in the play are so powerful you know like that letter like poison and that's something that thinkers about virtue in the period think about a lot so that scorpions for example can have so much venom and power in something so tiny that Juliet's a little bit like that. The poisons are a little bit like the poems. Letters are a little bit like that in the play too, that you can just pack a lot of power into something tiny. Um, so that intersection of the virtue style thinking that we were thinking talking about a moment ago and the small forms in the play as locuses of power is something that I think Shakespeare's thinking through in Romeo and Juliet. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. 
more than just melatonin. Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Botanical metaphors also afforded poets with metaphors for thinking about vulnerability and access. How do you see this working in the publications of Nicholas Breton and John Grange? Yeah, those are those are two of my favorite examples. They are both poets who published beginning in the 1570s. Breton would go on to have a much longer career. We don't know much of what became of John Grange after he published a book in 1577. Um, both of them appear in chapter three. And in chapter three, I look at a range of poetic gardens published in the 1570s by young men who were in one way or another associated with the Inns of Court. Breton's connection is a little bit more distant, but we know that Grange was, at least according to his signature in the book, um, associated with the Inns. And a lot of these books, including Gascoigne, to use the sort of bordered title page that I was talking about earlier. They use those floral ornaments in closing it. They present a collection of poems or often a long prose or verse narrative attached to poems as being a garden. John Grange is one example of those. And he publishes this book called The Golden Aphroditus in 1577. It's attached to a smaller collection of poems within the book. So there's this narrative, and then there's a little collection of verse called Grange's Garden. And at the beginning of Grange's Garden, he's writing this dedication to someone he hopes will be a patron. And he's saying... I don't really worry about what you're going to do to the garden. You know, I know that you're going to consume it in the right way and you'll visit it. And I invite you in. I give you full leave and liberty to choose whatever flowers you like. I'm a little worried, though, about some other readers right, who may not be so good at reading and who may uproot the poems. And and there he quotes a, a an adage in Latin, one that's from Erasmus's adages, and it translates essentially as a good shepherd shears his sheep, but he doesn't skin it. And when Erasmus talks about that, Ben Johnson talks about it too in Timbers, they are saying they link it to something that they attribute to Alexander the Great, which is that a good herbalist doesn't pull up the whole herb root and all. So the idea there is the distinction between what a gardener might call, you know, cut and come again, right? You can take a couple leaves of lettuce from the plant or a couple leaves of kale without tearing the whole thing out and it can keep growing versus, you know, skinning the sheep so that you can't take any more from it. And, and that for Grange becomes a model of good reading, that what you can do is allow the text to continue to flourish. And part of that is tied to the fact that for both of these poets, both Grange and Braddon, who I'll talk about more in a moment, these are this is juvenilia. They're young poets. They're saying, this is my first fruit. This is the first thing I'm bringing out. So be kind to it. Don't skin me. And then I'll give you some more later on, as long as I can keep growing. Um but the fact that Grange gives this incredibly violent image and Erasmus, when he used, talks about that same adage, links it to um, pulling the cods out or castration too. So there's this like, deeply emasculating image there with a lot of potential violence in it that Grange is thinking about. And that that comes to be at the center of 
how he wants to be received as a poet, that there is this alternate imagination of the possibility of castration, uprooting, not having any kind of poetic future. The kind of vision that that gives of what it means to be a young male poet in print is so closely tied to that kind of vulnerability to a certain vision of poetic masochism, essentially, that for the poem to be something valuable for me as a poet here, ventriloquizing range to be someone valuable, there has to be the possibility of harming it. There has to be the possibility of cutting it off in some way. Otherwise we don't know the value of it. Nicholas Breton, a couple years later in his works of a young wit, and he publishes two books in the same year, but this is likely his first book of poetry was, and again, here under the influence of Gascoigne, who at that point was his stepfather, um, which is another complicated story. Um, He introduces this book of poetry with a few different things. There's one really funny letter comparing books to cheese in terms of how people consume or appreciate them that I love. And then there's also a poem that compares the author to a husbandman and says, essentially, here's how I'm planting this. Here's how this is you know, getting how I'm sowing the seeds, etc. And he plays around with that. And he's kind of cunning about it, I think, in terms of saying I'm circulating, I'm spreading these oats, they're kind of cheap for now, if they don't grow, it's no big deal. So it's presenting what he's doing as juvenilia, but within this narrative arc of husbandry. But there's one moment where he says, here are these cheap oats. If some of them are wild oats mixed in, what does it matter? And that's a moment in passing, but it's also a fascinating one because it's framing the poetry as potentially having so-called wild oats in it. Wild oats, which aren't actually oats at all, but which are chokeweeds essentially, so that if they get mixed in with oats, they'll kill the productive oats. So, He's playing around with what kind of waste or what kind of vanity poetry might be. And he's giving himself permission as a young person to sow these wild oats while also erasing the kind of damage that wild oats can do to other things, the things that are growing around them. So I think he's playing around with that in a very interesting way Um, and framing again his sort of poetic authorship the species of poetic authorship that like Grange is tied to being a young man with a particular class identity, a particular racial identity that is linked to the possibility, the inevitability, the openness of future growth. So rather, which is a strange thing to say about a poem that you want someone to read too, right? Is to say, this isn't that good, but something else later will be really good. Like, why does that make someone want to read it now? It's a it's a mixed bag of an advertisement, but one that is doing this work of qualifying the poet as a certain kind of person and a certain kind of cultivatable person. I, I do have to say, I feel like Grange missed an opportunity with Grange's Grange. That there was in a great title. Um, I, you're, the next chapter in, in the book, takes up Isabella Whitney, who turns that constellation of metaphors inside out. As a woman writer, uh, the politics of enclosure and circulation were deeply fraught. 
who was Isabella Whitney and what kind of poetry did she write? Yeah, Isabel Whitney is a totally fascinating and compelling character in the period and in the story I tell in the book. So as I was saying, chapter three looks at some of these male poets. The following chapter, as you note, is focused on Whitney. And in many ways, chapter four reads her as a retort to the poets of chapter three, who are thinking about the enclosure of their gardens and what might happen to them. The premise of Whitney's 1573 collection, A Sweet Nosegay, is that she approaches one of these earlier collections, a um, one written in 1572 by a guy called Hugh Platt called The Flowers of Philosophy, borrows pieces from it, and she narrates this as an experience of going to a garden and taking slips, which becomes an allegory through which she narrates her process of reading and then takes them out of the garden and walks through the city with them. So she's literally opening up or breaking down the ostensible enclosures of those earlier gardens. In the chapter, I argue, and this is building on the idea of what a slip is, that she articulates a theory of reading that pieces apart gardens and is able to slip them out, redistribute them, take them around the city with her. So they're not linked to a concrete place, but are linked to her body, to their particular uses, to the ways that they might be reused or redistributed to different readers. I call this a kind of slippery reading because of what those slips are. Um, but essentially, it's a, it's a theory of readerly reuse and redistribution. And Whitney is totally fascinating. She is likely, to go back to that part of your question, the the first example we have of printed secular verse by a woman as a professional poet in Elizabethan England. Her first book of poetry was print. Both of her books were printed by Richard Jones, the printer. The first was in, came out in fifteen sixty six or sixty seven, called a copy of the of a letter, and had a collection of different um, lovers' complaint poems in it. A sweet nosegay when it came out in fifteen seventy three. Also a totally fascinating book, again, also printed by Richard Jones. And it had a few different sections. One is the the part that is the nosegay itself, which is a, a series of poetic flowers or rhyming couplets. Those are borrowed rewritings of Hugh Platt, as I said. The next section is a series of letters, mostly to relatives, that are in the voice of complaint, um, sort of saying how she has, how she's suffering, how she's been down on her luck. The third section, and this is a section that in some ways is the most poetically interesting, has been most anthologized, is her last will and testament, which is a, a mock testament, a mock will that's addressed to the city of London about her own departure. So in all of these, she is departing in different ways, right? In the plot section, she is taking things from the garden and leaving it. In the letters, she's bemoaning her own absence from these loved ones. In the last will and testament, she is again moving. So there is this centrifugal force to everything happening in the text as she is moving outwards. And part of what I think is so interesting there is how that opposes many of the dynamics we see in the male poets to in some ways centralize what they're doing to think about people accessing it. Whereas Whitney is imagining the distribution of her text in very different terms. She's doing that partially, I argue, through the logic of virtue that I've talked about in other chapters and that I talked about earlier, 
where these slips have their own virtues that themselves can travel, that don't have to be tied to a particular place. And in, and in some ways, to go back to that aspect of your question, it's a quite surprising thing for a female poet to do, to emphasize not her own moral enclosure, right? She's not being chased, silent, and obedient. She is not um, wrapping herself up in a way. She's actually doing the opposite and using the logic and language of virtue to justify it, that her feminine virtue actually could be out there and distributed and redistributed because of the moral economy of plant virtues as it was understood in the period. So in a way that becomes an enabling first force for her to rethink what feminine virtue is for a poet. So that's part of what I think is so interesting about Whitney is how she manages to rewrite and tactically re-signify, reuse a lot of these same conventions that other poets are using, but in totally radically different ways. I'd like to tack back a little bit. Um, And uh, before we started recording, you and I shared our enthusiasm for George Gascoigne, this uh, Elizabethan writer who um, innovated uh, in terms of English uh, prose as well as poetry. Um, what do you find fascinating about Gascoigne? And uh, in, so, in some ways, he's um, he establishes the foundation for this sort of horticultural system of metaphor, right? Yeah, he's I guess Gascoigne is always fun and infuriating to read, and you know, it's it's hard to think of his poetry and to think of you know. His Hundred Sundry Flowers were printed in 1573. Whitney's Sweet Nosegay was printed in 1573. That year is a sort of watershed for me in the book and for thinking about where is this botanical language coming from? What is it doing for printed poetry? What work is it doing for Gascoigne in the Hundred Sundry Flowers? He's using it in part to think about miscellaneity, variety, mixture, and but it's a version of mixture and variety to go back to some of what we were talking about earlier in terms of virtue, where what's sundry about the flowers, what's mixed up about them, what's various and copious about them is also tied to the social worlds in which they're produced and in which they circulate. So, there's one moment in the portion of chapter three on Gascoigne where I'm looking at how he actually uses that word sundry. And it appeared, when it appears, it usually appears at least two or three times. So you have sundry flowers or sundry devices or sundry poems. So a variety of written forms alongside sundry gentlemen who are writing them or sundry readers who are reading them. So the social dynamics of variety are always right there for him um, in the literary dynamics of variety. And I think that that integration, entanglement, mutual influence of the social scenes of reading and writing and the formal qualities of the verse are part for me of what makes Gascoigne so constantly fascinating. That and he never quite means what he says, or if he does, you don't think he does at the minute that he means it. There's so much shifting ironies and playfulness in him um, that you can never quite settle one way or another. You can always debate with yourself and with others what's actually going on 
in a given moment. Um, and I think part of that is that like, deep social embeddedness of what he's doing in these playful worlds of sundry gentlemen um, and complicated friendships and all of that. Whenever I teach Shakespeare's sonnets, it's always fascinating to see how students respond to the problem of the couplet. There's a long tradition in criticism of sliding the way Shakespeare's sonnets end. The couplet seems uh, disappointing or it, it just seems to fail to fulfill the potential of the first 12 lines. But you argue that the context of horticultural theory in the early modern period can help us um, to, to locate fresher readings of these sonnet endings. Is that right? Yeah, I, I have too have long been fascinated by the couplets to Shakespeare's sonnets and by the dissatisfaction that many have felt with them going, going back a long time and extending to my students currently. Um, but you know, a lot of the mid-century new critics really didn't like the sonnets for this reason, thought that those couplets were disappointing. And partially that's that the, you know, the structure of a sonnet sets up a problem and then solves it theoretically, or doesn't solve it, but that the Shakespearean form puts so much pressure on the couplet to do that, as opposed to, you know, in a Petrarchan sonnet, if you have the Volta after the first eight lines, you have another six lines at least to work on that solution. Um, Paul Fussell has a description of the couplet in the sonnets as the poetics of that couplet as a the needle that pops the balloon of the previous sonnet. And I think that image of the comic image of deflation of how much pressure it puts on the sonnet is really evocative of what happens there and also why it sometimes seems not as distinguished as we would like Shakespeare's sonnets to be. But part of what's interesting, too, about those couplets is that they're often technological. That's something Aaron Cunin has written about in interesting ways, that they bring in techniques or methods or in Sonnet 11, for example, that she carved thee for her seal and meant thereby thou shouldst print more, not let that copy die. That printing itself, copying, um, you know, the seal in wax becomes a technology of preservation that should solve everything leading up to it, to it, all of the depredations of time and waste that are destroying the body and the world, et cetera. Um, but again, yeah, that puts a lot of pressure on that couplet. But I think we can understand it better, or at least understand what Shakespeare's up to by thinking about other kinds of couplets from the period. I'm inspired. Was inspired in part by this. By Rosalie Coley has a wonderful argument about the epigrammatic quality of Shakespeare's couplets, how they fit into humanist epigrammatic traditions about pointedness and rhetorical pointedness, and and I think that's absolutely true. Part of my argument is also associating that with a kind of lower cultural register of agricultural practice and husbandry as well. So I read the sonnets alongside Thomas Tusser's Hundredth Points of Husbandry, first published as Hundredth Points of Husbandry in 1557. By 1573, it was 500 Points of Husbandry. And those are, and they just keep growing and getting weirder and more complicated. And it's one of my very favorite texts. Um, and 
part of what's so interesting about it is both that it renders husbandry instruction in couplets, which makes it memorable. Clearly, that's useful. But it also then creates more and more and more couplets and more poetic forms in ways that are clearly not in themselves useful for doing husbandry, but are serving some other kind of literary and aesthetic purpose. And my argument is that Tosser has an extremely important role in how we understand the history of the sonnet and the role of the couplet in it. There is actually a sonnet in the 1557 100th Points of Husbandry printed at the end of it. And one of the claims I make in the book is that that couplet of that sonnet is indented and it's the first indented couplet, something we now come to think is normal with Shakespeare, but wasn't quite normal yet. Um, that marks off the couplet as something separate from the rest of the poem, as something separable from the rest of the poem. And part of my argument is that that emerges from the discourse of husbandry, from a particular way of thinking about the use value, borrowability, the separability of the couplet as a useful and didactic form. And that that then informs both the literary form, the prosody of Shakespeare's sonnets, especially as that intersects with all of the thematics and metaphors of husbandry as a, as a way of understanding the passage of time and the engagement of human labor and ingenuity um, in the passage of time or against the passage of time. Okay, and I promised we would come back to swinish reading. Um, how, how do pigs read? How does one read like a pig? Um, and, wh and why is this such a big concern for early modern poets and printers? Yeah, well, they, they either read really badly or really well, depending who you ask. Mostly they'll say really badly. Um, and, and that's in part, there. well, there are two main reasons for that. One is that they just don't have taste. This is a famous thing about pigs now, right? They'll eat anything. They don't care how it smells. If they're in the mire, so much the better. And, you know, there was a part of that is, is a, the, you know, going back to Matthew and to the Bible, you know, don't throw pearls before swine. Um, but we, we talk less about sort of less they, they trample them and rend them. Don't throw pearls before swine or, you know, valuable things before dogs, less they tear and rend them. So, but there's this other side, not just that they can't appreciate it, but also that they might destroy them. So the, there was a, a, a saying in the Renaissance that goes back to classical antecedents that the, the pig can't appreciate the sweetness of the marjoram. So marjoram being a prototypically sweet herb of sweet scent. And, and that's something that appears also in 1557, <laughs> one of those turning point years, I think, in um, print culture there in um, Toddle's Miscellany and the songs and sonnets and the preface there. Um, he suggests that maybe readers in learning to be better readers of poetry could sort of come to appreciate that, could learn to appreciate that sweetness. So that idea of taste and that the sort of the swinish multitudes might not appreciate the sweetness of something, swinish reading stands in for that, that lack of appreciation. But then also that possibility of trampling, uprooting, which is the other thing that pigs are really, really good at, like rolling in mud, eating lots of things without distinction, but then also rooting things up, whether they're truffle pigs or, you know, even some farmers now use pigs for 
um, plowing. Right? I mean, they they won't. They'll plow everything, right? They'll plow your plans and they'll plow the fields you want plowed, but they'll do it, right? They're really good at digging stuff up. So there are all of these other accounts of pigs who destroy things. So that that's a consequence of bad reading, not just bad taste, but a kind of reading that consumes and destroys what it reads, I think is really interesting and tells us something about the matter of the book as something vulnerable, as something that could be destroyed, even when it exists in multiple copies as a printed book, right? It can be very hard to destroy, totally root out a text, but pigs threaten that. Um, the image of the swine as a reader threatens that. Um, so I have this the second branch, branch mini chapter in the book is about pigs as readers, and it, it ends with a reading of the Bower of Bliss, in which there is a pig and a garden that gets uprooted, but it's actually not the pig who uproots the garden. It's, you know, the knight of so-called temperance who intemperately uproots the garden and lets the pig survive at the end. So part of what I argue there is that Spencer is picking up this symbolic tradition, this convention of pigs as readers who uproot, but inverting it um, to re-signify what kind of thing the garden is and what should be uprooted or cultivated, what should survive, what kind of text should be destroyed and how. Admittedly, I may be a swinish reader myself, but I really enjoyed reading botanical poetics. And, and I'd like to talk to you about um, scholarly writing. Um, you, you, the quality of your prose is, you know, exceptional. It's a pleasure to read. What are your strategies for writing and revising? Um, do you have a, a process that you've developed over the course of uh, writing and revising this book? Do you have tips for scholarly writers? Well, that, that's really nice of you to say, um, and it's nice to know that someone who spent as much time with the book as you did <laughs> was still able to take some pleasure out of the sentences by the end. Um, I certainly think a lot about writing, and my advice is certainly not to suffer through it, but even though I might have at times, but it certainly takes time and labor, I think, to write. I think the, for me, the phrasing the sentences, the forms of articulation really does matter as the material substrate of thought. I can't think without writing. And, you know, for me, that's in part, I have certain methods of doing it. I need to print things out and do things by hand at times. I need to like map out sentences. I need to do all that kind of stuff. Um, but the other thing that I'd say is, I, before going to graduate school, I worked in journalism for a couple of years as a fact checker and f f realized how much writing was collaborative there and that the, you know, like the late nights I'd spent as a college student before that and like waiting for the muse to hit me, you know, that's bull. <laughs> that's not really how writing works and that it really is a collective labor of copy editors, other readers, fact checkers, other editors, and thinking about it as a labor that involves multiple people and I think having as many people involved as possible or reading other people's work, getting other people to read your work. And this was something that was sometimes hard and complicated about finishing a book during the pandemic too. And I found myself sometimes saying, okay, I need to be a different kind of reader now and putting on a different kind of reader hat, so sort of doing the role playing of being multiple readers myself um, is definitely part of it. The, so if I were to have 
tips, and you know, this is what I tell both grad students and undergrads too, is have as many readers as possible, imagine as many readers as possible, different kinds of readers, and be those readers yourself, whether it means going to a different room, reading it out loud, that sort of thing. Um, but also to sort of know your own like ticks as a writer or um, your own kind of slips or instincts, because I think those are often intellectual shortcuts. So, you know, I have my list that I know of that I'll, I'll say, of course, when I'm not confident about something, or I'll, you know, have long sentences if I'm saying something too complicated, or I'll say, you know, this is neither X nor Y, but Z. So when I'm reading myself, I look out for those because I know that means I need to, and I'm, I didn't definitely didn't get all of them in the book, in, in the revisions of it, but I know I need to look out for those um, to figure out where are those relationships of causality? Where am I using like a to be verb where I need to have a different, a stronger verb that really articulates a relationship of causality or whatever it is um so i do i am a believer in writing being thinking and being collective um and i think we need to be able to have time for it um and time that is often too short i think these days in the profession yeah yeah absolutely i have a running list of of ticks myself uh i overly rely on lists you know, oh, me too. Yeah, <laughs> bias, you know, like two adjectives linked by an and just because, you know, it, there's so much um, it's so much easier, I think, to have those lists than to kind of zoom in on the one adjective that. Um, that is being prioritized there. Yeah, yeah, um, and I, I definitely, you know, and when I'm teaching writing to both, I mean, especially to undergrads and also to grad students, encourage them or help them form some of those lists themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, of sort of what is your checklist of things to look at in your own writing um, as you're reading it and thinking about how to improve it. Um, knowing yeah. yourself as a writer is clearly crucial. That's great. That's a great activity. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to implement that this semester. That's great. And I, I love your, um, the emphasis you're bringing to collaboration and to kind of inhabiting different persona as a reader as well, a reader of your own prose. That, that's, that's wonderful. Um, now that this book is out in the world, what are you turning your attention to? Do you have a scholarly project or a non-scholarly project that you are excited to work on? Yeah, I, I do have a lot of, you know, as I was saying at the beginning, little ideas that sort of stuck in the incubator for a number of years. Um, and then questions lingering from this book that I just want to spend more time on. Some of those are at the center of those are issues about skill and about use and about essentially the poetics of instruction in early modern texts. How do they address readers? How do they control them or not control them? Those are some questions central to this book. Um, But I've become especially more interested in technique and in techniques of teaching and procedures and almost algorithmic ways of doing things. So in recipe books, I'm interested in that, in books of secrets, works of instruction. So I've been looking at those especially. And one of the things that I noticed while teaching in the last few years is how many of those also fill 
filter into Shakespearean and non-Shakespearean comedy and how many tricks, devices, knacks are at the center of comic practice and comic narrative, comic plotting in the period. So that's what I'm getting started to working on more and thinking about the remaking of nature and the versions of, in some ways, experimental science that are getting worked out through comic plotting and comic logic and the presence of these discrete tricks or ways of practicing on someone. And because there are a lot of dynamics of cruelty in there, of use, and I think a history of like what we might call in modernity instrumental reason that looks much stranger in that period. Um, so I'm moving more towards drama coming out of this book, um, which has less drama in it and is more about poetry. Um, but it's also just fun to think about and fun to work on comedy coming out of um, looking at lots of poetic miscellanies and gardening books for many years. Um, so that, that's where I'm going right now. Okay. Um, we'll keep our eye out for that project. Um, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast, Jessica. Yeah. Thank you so much, John. This was really fun. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.